Good morning, folks. It's great to be with you again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us from our separate homes to gather in this place today. We thank you that you've drawn us here, that we might worship you together in spirit and in truth, and we might hear whatever you want to say to us, and also receive whatever you want to give to us. And so we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit for me as I speak and for all of us as we respond to what you will say to us this morning, Lord. We want to go away aware that you have ministered to us and enriched us in a very real way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years I have observed that uh, many Christians struggle with a variety of difficulties, problems, including fear, anxiety, worry. But I have also observed in the scriptures that God has shown us and told us how to deal with these things. Now our Christian witness is not only what we tell people about Jesus it's what we show them about Jesus in other words the difference he makes in our lives and a Christian who's going around obviously anxious or worried or afraid is not a great advert for the gospel because unbelievers are like that and they're good cause to be but you see we have resources God has given us such massive resources to equip us to handle the difficulties of life and to do so triumphantly. It's part of our witness that in a world where people are, for very good causes and many good reasons, anxious, we, by contrast, should be calm and not bowed down with anxiety. Paul teaches us how to handle it, Peter does, and our Lord Jesus does as well. We're turning this morning to Philippians chapter 4, and what Paul has to say on this subject. In Philippians chapter 4, reading from verse 2, he says, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, these were two ladies in the church of Philippi, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness or fair-mindedness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice 
And the God of peace will be with you. So how do you react if you find yourself getting anxious? Do you say, oh, I better pray about this? And you launch into prayer and you talk to God about the situation that's making you anxious. You're thinking about the problem, not really focusing on the Lord so much. And you're praying about it and sometimes you're disappointed that the anxiety doesn't seem to go. What are you missing? Well, every text, as some famous preacher said, taken out of its context is a pretext. Ah, playing with words. But the point is, when we come to read and study the Word of God and seek to learn how to apply it to our lives, it's important that we don't just pick a few words out of our context and treat them in isolation. It's important that we see them within the context in which they were written, because that's very often significant, and it is here. You see, before Paul mentions anything about praying in order to deal with anxiety, he says something else, and the something else is such an important thing. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now those of us who have known the Lord for a long time and those of us who spent many hours reading and studying the Word of God couldn't possibly have failed to notice that joy is something that runs right through the Scriptures. Not just in the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. If we go back, for example, to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. And we read there the prophet being led to write this. What did he say? He says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in the robe of righteousness. What reason, what cause do believers have for rejoicing? Well, this is the absolute basic one. Because, you see, when we come to the Lord to be saved from our sin, we come because we have become aware that the sin in our lives, which is offending God and keeping us apart from God, and if only we could get rid of that sin and replace it with the opposite of sin, which is goodness, righteousness, holiness, then the whole situation would have changed. And Isaiah is saying, this is what's happened to me. God has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. The number one deficiency in human life is not wealth, it's not health, it's not a whole lot of things. It's righteousness. We're just not fit by nature for God's company and that's serious. And when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he becomes our righteousness. And the little chorus says... Uh, I am covered over with the robe of righteousness which Jesus gives to me. I am covered over with the precious blood of Jesus and he lives in me. What a joy it is to know that my heavenly father loves me so and gives to me my Jesus. When he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. That's the difference, you see. I'm now clothed 
clothed and covered with the righteousness of Jesus and when God looks at my life he doesn't see a messed up life he doesn't see a sin-stained life he sees Jesus the perfect righteousness of Jesus given to me if that isn't cause for rejoicing I don't know what is eh? isn't that our number one reason for rejoicing but of course we can come to the New Testament and we can find again this joy that is so clearly indicated as something normal and desirable for the believer you remember in addition to sending out the 12 apostles our Lord Jesus sent out 72 others and he sent them out to heal people and to proclaim the kingdom of God and they came back from their mission trip the 72 returned with joy Aha. they returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes, serpents, scorpions, to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Why is he saying that? Because there's a far higher reason for rejoicing. Having evil spirits submit to us and we minister somebody in the name of Jesus, it's momentary, it, it, it's, it happens and it's all over. That's the end. But here is a cause for rejoicing again and again and again. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's permanent, not temporary. Eh? Yes. And of course we know, we're reminded of it from, from the wall there. The fruit of the Spirit includes joy. So the Holy Spirit is quietly working in the life of the believer. And as long as we don't grieve the Spirit, as long as we don't quench the Spirit, then that fruit will grow and develop and there will be a basic joy in our lives. But you see, joy is a noun. It describes a certain state that we're in. A state of joy. But what Paul uses here is not a noun. It's a verb. This means we're going to do something. He says rejoice. This is actually you and I doing something. And that's not always appreciated. We realize that it would be wonderful to have a bit more joy sometimes, but we don't realize that it's in our power to use a modern expression to kickstart it. Yeah. Oh yes. <coughs> The command is a clear command. Rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again. Rejoice. What do we know about the way in which we ought to be rejoicing? Well, we've got to rejoice deliberately. It won't happen if we don't start it, if we don't do it. See, even in the previous chapter, Philippians chapter 3, already Paul has said to these same people, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you, and it's a safeguard for you. Oh, joy is a safeguard. Yes, if I'm actually rejoicing, it's a bit difficult to be rejoicing and be anxious at the same time. And as long as the rejoicing is going on, the anxiety hasn't got too much chance. Hmm. Let's go back to the Old Testament for a minute. Back to the prophecy of Habakkuk. And he describes a situation which sounds pretty unenviable. Things were not going well, but he was handling them well. 
He was handling them well. What is he saying? He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, in other words, if everything's going haywire, if everything's going wrong in my life, as it sometimes seems to happen, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. So the first thing we need to notice about this command to rejoice is that it's got to be done deliberately. We have got to do something to get this going. Rejoice deliberately. And of course the Lord Jesus himself tells us exactly the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. After speaking of these different situations, which all begin with the word blessed or happy, he comes to the last of these and says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, notice, not because you're being a pain in the neck and being awkward and difficult, no, no, but because you're actually identifying yourself with Jesus and trying to speak about him and interest others in him. And people don't want to hear it and they insult you and they persecute you, says Jesus. Well, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Oh, an incentive to rejoice. Great is your reward in heaven. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So rejoicing is something we have to do deliberately. To rejoice is a choice. You see there are mornings, yes there are mornings when this old preacher gets up and comes downstairs and doesn't feel great and feels a bit sorry for himself and this and that is not just going as well as I'd like it to be and so on and so forth. And I could very easily go into having a pity party. Do you know what? <laughs> I've never yet been to a pity party that I enjoyed. <laughs> so who wants pity parties? They're no good. Get to nowhere. So when we begin to feel a little bit down, you say we're a bit discouraged, a bit unhappy about something, just turn the key or just the switch, throw the switch and say, Lord Jesus, I'm choosing to rejoice in you because you are never a disappointment. You're always there for me. You're always the same. You're always loving me. You're always helping me. So Jesus, I choose to rejoice in you. The time I said all that, well, where's the anxiety I felt? Oh. Heaven is a spirit, it's gone. Hallelujah. We're going to rejoice deliberately. And Paul emphasizes also the fact that we've got to rejoice perpetually. It's not something that we're to do when we're kind of in a, at a high spiritually. It's not something we're to do just when we find it easy to do or we feel like doing it. Quite the opposite. It's when we don't feel like doing it. It's the most important time to do it. And we've got to rejoice perpetually. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Go back to the Old Testament, Psalm 89. And the psalmist David says this. He says this in verse 15 of Psalm 89. 
Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, he's talking to the Lord, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness. So David knew all about suffering and discouragement and anxiety and danger, and yet he speaks about rejoicing in the Lord all day long. And in the New Testament, Paul teaches in 1 Thessalonians 5 exactly the same message. He's summing up at the end of his letter and he says this in his summary. He says, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Okay. Before we start doing any praying about the anxiety we're sensing, first of all, first of all, do the rejoicing. Don't just come in cold with prayer and struggle to be clear of unbelief and, and, and bring something to God that's bothering you and upsetting you and worrying you. Start with the rejoicing and then you're really on your way to praying effectively in faith. But of course there's more to come. Number one is about rejoicing. Number two is requesting. Rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God. Mm. Rejoicing is followed by requesting. And the requesting comes out of an atmosphere of rejoicing. The purpose of this requesting is obvious, to be free from anxiety. Purpose is obvious. Turning over to Peter's teaching on dealing with anxiety, we find in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter saying, Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now see, first of all, in Paul's teaching, we see that our dealing with the actual anxiety comes out of a context of rejoicing. But now Peter is saying another context is, is important also when we're trying to deal with something like anxiety. Be sure that you're in a position of humility. You see, what God hates more than anything else is pride and arrogance. And humility is a direct opposite of that. And Peter tells us it's important that we don't only humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. That's fairly easy to do, perhaps. And we're also to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. And that includes the folk we don't like very much. Oh dear. But to see humility is so important. A right attitude of humility. And then, says Peter, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. And interestingly, the verb that Peter uses here, which is translated cast, is a very strong verb. You see, if I had a ball in my hand, you know, I could throw it to you, Liz, or just, just gently so you'd catch it nice and easily. Or I could fling it at you, Margaret, I want to hit you in the nose. Oh, horrors. 
You see, and this is the verb that Peter uses here. It's not just a nice gentle we throw it away, easy to cash. And, no, no. This is flinging the thing as far as you can make it go. Don't you want the anxiety to go away? Of course you do. So fling it as far as you can. And I find it helpful, you know. I never did this when I was young, but I do it now that I'm old. Uh, <laughs> when I am having trouble with anxiety, I say, Father, I'm not able to handle this, but you can. You know what to do with it. Here it comes. Whoa! And I literally throw the stuff across the kitchen. It's gone. Hmm, try it and see. It works. Over in the Psalms, we have a little verse which encourages us again. Psalm number 55. Uh, where is the Psalm? Psalm number 55. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. There it is again, you see. Long before the days of the Apostle Peter. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He'll come to the rescue. He'll do the needful. So the purpose, obviously, of requesting is to be free from the anxiety. But again, you see, this procedure here we mustn't ignore. Because Paul stresses the fact that in praying for freedom from anxiety, we must be expressing thankfulness. Now, it takes very little faith to express thankfulness for a prayer answered once the prayer has definitely been answered. It doesn't take much faith to say thank you, Father, afterwards. But you see, it's not afterwards it's to be done. It's at the moment of praying. Oh, in everything but prayer and petition with thanksgiving. The thanksgiving's in the mixture. It comes along with the requesting. Oh, present your requests to God. And if we stay in the Psalms, I should have kept that place in the Psalms when I had it a minute ago. If we stay in the Psalms, we find this is exactly what we are told to do. This time we're going into Psalm 50. And there in Psalm 50, we find first of all in the middle of the Psalm, a call to give thanks. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honour me. But you see, here again, this calling on the Lord in the day of trouble is to come out of a context of thankfulness. Offer thanksgiving. You know, in the good old days when number plates and cars were a bit more simple than they are now, I had a number plate. Uh, not literally, but I used an imaginary number plate to find my way to this verse. What was it? P.S. 5015. Hmm. Easy to remember. P.S. 5015. Come on, you've got to memorize already. P.S. 5015. Well, that's it. Call upon me in the day of trouble, the Lord says. I'll deliver you and you will honor me. Do you see what's happening here? When we involve the Lord in our difficulties, our problems, our troubles, our anxieties, something happens to us and something happens to him as well, the Lord. He says, I will deliver you, you'll get the deliverance and I'll get the glory, I'll get the honor. Isn't that great? That God gets something out of it as well as I do. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Mm, I think so anyway. So, later in the psalm, the very end of the psalm, comes like this. 
He who sacrifices thank offerings honours me. The same concept. And he prepares the way that I may show him the salvation of God. In other words, I may move into the situation and bring my salvation blessing to deal with a problem. Isn't that great? I think it's wonderful. So the procedure has got to include thankfulness. It's not a bad habit. It may label you as being a bit eccentric, but never mind that. It's not a bad habit to go around sometimes muttering quietly, Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. You know, the Lord loves to be thanked. He loves to be thanked. I mean, those of us who are parents, grandparents, don't we love it? When our children or grandchildren come to us and say, Oh, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Grandpa, for that. It's lovely to hear that, isn't it? Well, the Lord's just the same. He loves to be thanked. So, one day, one way to keep the, the, the kind of communication open between earth and heaven, between the believer and the Father, is just to keep saying, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Father. And we've always got cause for thankful, thankfulness. Of course we have. So, precision is also important. Because, you see, the verb here says, present your request to God. And that particular verb means something definite and precise. No vagueness. I mean, some people pray so vaguely that they wouldn't know whether the prayer was answered or not. <laughs> and that's no use. Absolutely no use. God expects us to be specific. And Jesus emphasized this in Matthew chapter 7. When he said, Which of you, if his son asks for bread... We'll give him a stone. And if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts, the very gifts you need, the very gifts you've asked for, to those who ask him? Oh, requesting, and the purpose is to get rid of the anxiety, and the procedure ought to include thankfulness in advance and precision in the asking. Now, the promise, the promise attached. It's a very, very wonderful promise. Paul is teaching us, if you do what I'm instructing you to do, don't be anxious, but come in prayer with petition and request to God. And here's the promise. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a promise is that. The peace of God. You see, God brings us to peace with him through our conversion. We have peace with God, says Paul, being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. At the point where we come to Jesus, we get a new relationship with God. He's now at peace with us, and we're at peace with him. It's a peace relationship. But he wants to go beyond that. That's only the relationship. But within the relationship now, he wants us to experience peace. And we live in a world that's torn apart with strife and conflict and war and battling and destruction. And God says, that's not what I want for you, my children. I wanted to live in a, an atmosphere, a state of peace. And not just any old peace, but the peace of God, says Paul, which transcends all understanding. It is so great, so vast, so adequate. You just can't figure it out.
Well, let's go back to the Old Testament again. What will we do with our Old Testaments? Back to Isaiah chapter 32. And there, in that context, Isaiah is led to write this way. He's been describing a situation where things are not good, things are going wrong, God's people have been sinful and they're paying the price of their sinfulness. And then he comes to a turning point and he says that's the way it's going to be until, verse 15, until the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is poured out from on high. Now this, you see, is the key to everything else. Are being controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, everything changes for the better. And here's part of the change. He says, the fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. I think that's a wonderful promise. God wants us to live in peace. In peace. In the midst of a world of conflicts, he wants it to be evident that we who know God as our Heavenly Father live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Wonderful, wonderful. But you see, we have to be careful to do all we've been learning to do this morning. We have to be careful to include rejoicing to start with rejoicing. We have to be careful to include thankfulness in making the request. And we have to be specific and precise. And this promise, says Paul, extends to our hearts and our minds. And it's very significant, he said, he uses the word guard. He says this peace will guard your hearts and your minds. Why is it significant? Because Philippi, the first place in Europe where a Christian church was planted, was a Roman colony. And the Romans were a bit like the modern Israelis. They were ready to hit hard anybody who disturbed the peace. Oh yes. And so in Philippi, the residents in Philippi were accustomed to seeing sentries parading up and down, armed sentries, who would deal radically with anybody who dared disturb the peace. And Paul is saying, you know what? The peace of God is going to do this for you. It's going to guard your hearts, that's our emotions. Your hearts. Now our emotions are a very precious gift from God. They can be a great asset. <laughs> they can also be a terrible liability. Because if our emotions run wild, if our emotions are out of control, they can lead us into sin, they can lead us into a great deal of trouble and evil and so on. Our emotions are not supposed to be in charge. They're supposed to be controlled by our minds and our wills. But the thing is, this peace that God gives will guard our emotions, our hearts, and of course, guard our minds. As we close, just let's think about one or two things that the Bible says about our minds. 
What is the worst state of mind a person can possibly have? What Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. He tells us there that when people snap their fingers at God and declare defiantly they simply don't want God in their lives. They don't want anything to do with God. They would like God to keep well away from them. When people do that, and an awful lot of people throughout the earth are doing that right now, what happens? Three times in that chapter, it's scary stuff, three times in that chapter, we find the same phrase. Therefore, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. In other words, God took his protection away. He withdrew his protection from them and said, if you don't want anything to do with me, if you don't want me in your life, well, see how you get on without me in your life. That's frightening, you know, isn't it? I think it is. It's frightening. And in each case, you see, it results in behavior and lifestyle which is horrendous. First of all, sexual impurity. Secondly, shameful lusts. And finally, the third thing, a depraved mind. That's why there are depraved people in the world. Because they have defied God and declared war against God and rebelled against Him. And they're paying the price for it. And others around them are paying the price for it too. Because of their depravity. That's the worst possible state of mind a human being can have. But by complete contrast to that, you see, God wants us to have a mind that is controlled, that is guarded all the time. Oh yes. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. And he says that the same that applied to the Old Testament believers is still to apply to the New Testament believers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love God with your mind. That's got to mean taking time to interact with God, to think about God to study his word, to learn his will, and to communicate with him, because our minds are a key to everything else in our lives. As we saw, I think, some months ago when I was with you, looking at Romans 12, where Paul teaches, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. My mind is the key to everything else in my life. Let me give you one more scripture. Back in Isaiah. Isaiah, this time going back to chapter 26. A little promise that is really very special. Isaiah 26 and verse 3. Isaiah is addressing the Lord. And he says, you will keep in perfect peace. And the way the Hebrew language says perfect peace, it just says the word peace twice. You will keep in shalom, shalom. Him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. So a perpetual ongoing trust in the Lord stabilizes us. But there's more to it than that. 
because you see a legitimate translation could put this somewhat differently it could say to the Lord you will keep in perfect peace and shalom shalom the person whose imagination stops at you imagination is a wonderful gift from God but you see that also can be a blessing or a curse depending on how we use it we can go off into a fantasy world and end up turning that fantasy into into reality of all sorts of evil but there is a wonderful promise the Lord will keep in perfect peace the person whose imagination stops at him keeps focused on him when God controls our imagination it will never be a curse to us but only ever a blessing now I don't know whether you have a problem with anxiety or not but I do know that the Lord wants to help you to get free from that because it's a a liability it's not an asset to be plagued with anxiety or worry or fear so after we've had some worship we'll have an opportunity for you to come for prayer if you would like prayer just to the Holy Spirit's help to enable you to take appropriate action in the future and discover to your delight that anxiety as far as your life is concerned is a thing of the past let's pray Father, we know that you want to bless us, not less and less, but more and more. And we ask that you will make us willing to accept the discipline of living under the control of your Holy Spirit and the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might say goodbye to anxiety which all of us have been troubled by in the past. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.